you're in for a real treat today. Uh, one of my favorite people in the whole world is here today. His name is Dr. Micah Green. Uh, Micah was speaking at a conference at a church in Lubbock where my daughter is on staff. And she said, she said, Dad, I think you know this guy. His name's Micah. Wasn't he in your youth group back in the day? I said, yeah. And so uh, we went back, and Miley and I listened to the podcast, and it was just excellent. We went, wow, man, Micah is such a fantastic communicator. Uh, and you are in for a real treat today. And so what I did was I called Micah, and I used some guilt and manipulation, and I got him to come back to Borger, Texas, and uh, here, be here to speak with us today. And uh, Micah uh, grew up going to First Baptist Church. His wife, Heather, Heather Denton, formerly, uh, used to be a big part of Faith Covenant Church back in the day. Micah left Borger, Texas, went on to Texas Tech University, uh, the uh, proud victors over the Texas Longhorns yesterday. And uh, that's right, guns up. And, uh, uh, but then uh, he was given an opportunity to go to MIT, where he earned a PhD in chemical engineering. And he also went to Harvard while he was there and uh, got a minor in Christian history. And so uh, just an incredible, incredible man. He's now a professor of chemical engineering. At first, he was at Texas Tech University, but then he went to the dark side. He's now at Texas A&M. All right, so we'll try to bring him back. But uh, we are just so, so grateful to have Micah here today. And uh, we've asked him to come here and speak specifically about some of the issues relating to defending our faith in the public square. And something I appreciate so much about Micah, and I said this over there a little while ago, he's always been the same person. He was the most faithful kid in our youth ministry. His family was always so faithful to the church. And even though he's been uh, pursuing uh, such a great career in academia and doing so many things, uh, he's still uh, a terrific family man. Uh, he is a church leader, and he is a, travels around the country speaking defending the Christian faith, and I just appreciate that about him so, so much. So he's going to speak to us here this morning, and then I want you to know that after he's done here, if you'd like to, we're going to have lunch over in the Children's Chapel, the original chapel of Faith Covenant Church, and we'll be having lunch over there. It's going to be a great lunch. We'd love for you to come over there, and he'll be doing a Q&A over there, and that's going to be something I'm really looking forward to a lot. So let's give a warm welcome home to Dr. Micah Green. Okay. All right. Check, check. Am I on? All right, cool. Uh, thank you all for having me here. It's been great to be back. Uh, Les was a, a huge influence on me when I was at Borger High and Borger Middle School back in the day. Um, as Les mentioned, uh, my, my sweet wife, Heather, grew up in this church, and Heather lived like 300 yards that way, just very close. And so it's special to be, be back here with Les, be back here in Borger, and be back at this church in particular. Okay. Middle schoolers. Middle schoolers, raise your hand. All right, a few high schoolers. High schoolers, raise your hand. All right, cool. So uh, I hope the rest of you don't mind, but I'm going to ignore the rest of y'all. So I'm going to talk to middle schoolers and high schoolers quite a bit today. Um, we have a weird kind of a, a topic today. We're going to talk about the topic of deconstruction. I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm going to throw a lot at you. I put my email address. I know it may feel icky to type texasanduniversity.edu into the email address, but if you if you want a copy of slides, you're certainly welcome to it. So I'm going to talk about a topic that like kind of didn't exist 10 years ago, it seems like. And that's the topic of deconstruction. How many of y'all have heard this weird word? Okay. All right, cool. So deconstruction sounds like you messed up the word. Like destruction? No, it's not destruction. So you can construct a building. You can construct a building out of Legos. And then to deconstruct means you're taking it apart. You're starting to take it apart into its constituent elements and see what it's made of. And hopefully, Lord willing, right, be able to put it back together. 
Um, I have small children, and so if I give one of my, my children a, a burrito, and they would deconstruct the burrito, I'm like, please, please don't do that. Please put it back together. Oh, it's a lost cause, right? So that's what generally what the idea of deconstruction means. But usually people use this word to apply to deconstructing your faith, right? So, so there's a lot out there right now about people saying, oh, I'm going through deconstruction. Uh, 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 the other word that you, you may hear sometimes, this word down here, uh, exvangelical. That means people are, are looking at pieces of their faith and then saying like, nope, nope, I don't think so, nope, and then, and then often walking away from the faith. And I do want to warn you, there's a little bit of a switcheroo that can sometimes happen with this word deconstruction, because you may think like, there we go, yeah, some people may say like, deconstruction is healthy, it's a good thing. It is good, it is true, it is good to examine why you believe what you believe. That is a good thing. But deconstruction usually is not merely that. It's, it usually goes the additional element and, and means being pretty cynical and, and disillusioned with that different aspects of your faith. So I want to try to get us away from, from this idea of pursuing deconstruction and maybe towards something a little, a little healthier. Um, some of the things you'll hear people say, especially online, deconstruction has happened a lot during the pandemic because people were stuck online and looking up all these different things on the internet and on Instagram. And so you'll hear people say things like, oh, Christianity, that's just about money. Christianity is just about power. It's, uh, it's hateful. It's oppressive. It's backwards. It's unscientific. You'll hear people say these kinds of things. These are all the sort of things that might come up in the context of someone uh, going through deconstruction, right? And this is happening on a, on a large scale. I don't know if you can see this. This is uh, data from the Pew Research Center. And the red that you see going down over the last 30 years is, uh, is uh, U.S. adults who identify as Christians. It's going down quite a bit in the last few years. And then this, this, uh, this line on the bottom that's starting to go up are what are called religious nuns. And I don't mean N-U-N nuns. I mean like N-O-N-E, people who identify as nothing. And so uh, this has been happening in Western Europe for a while, but it has definitely come to the U.S. now. And so for, for people in Texas, it may feel like, did this all just happen in one decade? Like, what in the world is going on? And so this, that does indeed seem to be the case, that many more people don't identify as Christians anymore, and that's a, that's a major change. So maybe a better approach that I think I can recommend to you is this illustration. So let's picture a Christmas tree. If you think of a Christmas tree, there is the tree. That is the important part. You must have the tree, and then there are ornaments that you put on the tree. And, you know, you, your ornaments may be different than someone else's ornaments, but Lord willing, everybody has a tree under there at some point. And so what I want you to think of is the tree is the Christian faith. Set out for us in the Bible, divinely inspired. This is what you need to believe. This is what is life-giving. And then we all put our little cultural ornaments on there. That can be very, things that are very good. It may be the way that we do uh, music. It may be the way that we do youth group. It may be the way even that our building is shaped or that our building is constructed. So we have all our little cultural ornaments. And if you go somewhere else in the world, they might put different cultural ornaments on there, and that's okay. So everybody okay with my church? And I mean, my, you know, my idea of the tree is the Christian faith, and we put our ornaments on there. And it's okay to change the ornaments, but it's not okay to start messing with the tree. That's the idea. So there's a lot of ways that this can go wrong. Um, uh, the idea would be, um, instead of calling this Dis, uh, deconstruction, you could call this disenculturation. That's trying to figure out what's tree and what's ornaments. What are the things that are core to my Christian faith? And what are things that are just like, oh, that's just a Texas thing. This is the, the Texas way that we do church and that's okay. Knowing the difference between those two can really help, especially for someone who may be uh, uh, trying to weigh this deconstruction idea. Uh, because it could be that some of those ornaments um, are not very helpful or maybe, uh, maybe hurtful. So there's a lot of different ways that this can go wrong. Uh, there we go. Come on, thing. Come to life. Hold on. Uh, let's see. I'm going to use the force on it. Okay. Oh, there it goes. It, 
It's on a delay. So someone might, say, y'all may have had this happen. Someone might claim, oh, this ornament? No, no, no. That's actually part of the tree and you have to do it that way. Um, there are some churches in, in, in the world who say like, you must not use uh, instruments when you worship. That's bad. Or you must worship with only the Psalms. Anything else is bad. So you might say like, that's just your particular culture. Don't make that part of the tree. Not everybody has to do it that way. Um, but the, 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 the more likely problem is someone might actually like hack off part of the tree and say like, that's just cultural. This happens in the U.S. a lot, especially around uh, questions of, of sexuality and sexual ethics. They may say, like, mm, the Bible doesn't really mean that. That's just our culture, and chop it off. Um, and then some of the things that we put on the tree, the way that we do Christianity, the way that we do it, may actually be kind of harmful. Um, in our morning session, we talked about how Jesus gets on the case of the Pharisees, saying, you've added your traditions to the Word of God and, and held people back and hurt people. I'll give you a kind of a strange example from American history. Um, if you go to the Old North Church in Boston, uh, this is a very famous church. This is where Paul Revere went. And uh, this is the famous church. You can see the tower there. Um, you remember they had to hold, you put the one if by land, two if by sea, you put the lamps. This is that church in Boston. I lived in Boston for several years. And if you go visit the church, one of the weird things is you see the pews don't look like this. It's not just chairs anybody can go in. If you see that the pews, it's like each one is its own little cubicle. And to have your cubicle, to have your pew, you have to pay. You have to pay pew fees and only you get to sit there. And if you don't pay, you don't get to go. Does that sound like a good way to do church? I don't think so. I don't think this is a bad idea. So this is an example. Eventually, American Christians said, like, maybe we should stop doing this. Let's take that ornament off the tree. This is not super helpful. Let's get rid of that. And that's okay. <clears throat> so I guess one other thing I can, I can say is that um, most people who are deconstructing are not reacting against the Bible itself. They're not reacting against their faith itself. They're, they're, act, they're acting against some hurtful aspect of their own past. Maybe they've seen... Uh, a, a pastor fail. Maybe they've seen abuse in the church. Maybe, uh, maybe someone treated them really poorly or really legalistic or unkind. And we could say like, look, those are just little ornaments that someone's put on the tree. You can get rid of that. That doesn't mean that your faith is false. This is what most people are reacting to. And I'll, I'll be a little personal for a second and say, um, one of the things I faced here in Borger, uh, those of you who know me know I ask a lot of questions. And I actually had an experience when I was fairly young uh, I mean, certainly like the same age as these middle schoolers, where um, I looked at two different stories in the Bible, one of these gospel stories. And y'all know that the gospels sometimes tell this story. They both have the same story, but it's told slightly different. And I was like, what's the deal? Why, why are these two different? And um, an, an older Christian basically told me like, shut up, kid. Like, don't ask too many questions. And I thought like, that's, that's not good. If, it's, if I have the kind of faith where he can't ask any questions, like, I don't know what I think of all this. Thankfully, thankfully, my dad like heard about it, like he realized that all this had happened. And my dad was very kind. And he took me, he took me right in the face. He looked me right in the eyes and he said, you can ask any question you want. The Bible can take it. And so for the middle schoolers in the room, I, I can't reach all of you, but I basically want to tell you, I want to take you by your face and say, you can ask any question you want. The Bible can take it. I feel like if I hadn't had that work, that you can tell, like I still remember this many years later, that like that sentence, that confidence, that reassurance from my dad went a long way. It really helped. And if I had grown up thinking like Christianity is the kind of place where you're not allowed to ask questions, then I might have walked away from the faith too. But having someone say like, don't send that. You can ask any question you want because the Bible can handle it. It's really valuable, right? And that's what we need to hear too. Okay, so the danger of deconstruction is that um, our culture is actually telling us something very different about the tree. They're basically saying like, 
hey, that tree of Christianity you have, I know you think like there's a tree under there and then there's ornaments, but it's actually just ornaments all the way down. Can you all imagine a Christmas tree that's only ornaments? That's just a pile of ornaments. And so the culture is telling you that your Christian faith is just ornaments. It's just things that your culture has created and that's it. And there is no tree under there. And that's the danger. Once you get in the, that mode sometimes of like trying to pull off ornaments, you might think like, ah, it's ornaments all the way down. And that's actually not true. So our goal today, we're going to walk through a couple different stories. In the morning session, we walked through people through this, this first story, which is that people may say, Christianity? No, I don't think so. It's unscientific. It's outdated. Um, um, this is something that, that belonged back in medieval times, but we're smarter than that now. We're more advanced and we're more scientific. So we went through that whole thing this morning in the, in the nine o'clock session. Um, and sometimes, and so I think we dealt with it pretty well. Those of you who are in the morning session, yeah, we did good. All right, good. Um, and sometimes this story number one is called modernism. Modernism. So what comes after modernism? Postmodernism. So that's, now we're going to go into story number two. Um, story number two is postmodernism. There it is. And postmodernism says something very different about Christianity. Instead of saying that Christianity is like unscientific or backwards or dumb, it says Christianity is oppressive. And this is much more likely what you're going to hear, including at places like Borger Middle School and Borger High School and definitely on college campuses around the U.S. You're much more likely to hear that Christianity is oppressive. So uh, this next slide is basically what postmodernism has to say to you about your faith. So I'm going to put my postmodern hat on. I don't actually own a postmodern hat. I, I maybe brought it. So y'all ready? This next slide, you're not going to like it. This is postmodernism. Here we go. All right. All right. Come on now. Hit me. Oh, you got me. All right. So postmodernism says don't make absolute truth claims about religion or about what's right and wrong because those truth claims of like here's how the way, the way things should be, those are just tools used by the powerful to oppress other people. And if you try to say, Christianity is the right way to live. Christianity is true. You're always going to say, this is my in-group, the people in the church, and everybody else, they're out. We are in, we are superior to that out-group, and we're going to be superior to them and to oppress them. Have y'all, anybody ever heard something like this about Christianity? Yeah. So this is much more widespread, right? We're in the postmodern age now, so this is what people will say. Um, some of you also may, should, you may have heard the term critical theory. Have y'all heard the term critical theory? Yep. Okay, good. So uh, critical theory just broadly says that you analyze society in terms of power dynamics, right? That's always one group trying to take power over another, and that applies to religion too. So I want us to evaluate story number two. So you all agree you've heard this kind of thing, especially online? Yep, definitely. So let's evaluate story number two. Uh, it turns out story number two has got some real problems. So I think maybe if I say it a little different, you can see pretty clearly like what the problems are. So Let's go to this next slide. Okay, so let's say that somebody texts you, uh, like, let's say, oh, some friend, we'll call him Les, just for, for the sake, you know. So Les texts you and says, um, truth claims are just tools of oppression. Anybody have a problem with that sentence? Something a little, wait a minute. So you could say, like, uh, hey, I feel very oppressed by your truth claim, <laughs> right? Saying truth claims are tools of oppression is a truth claim. So it's almost like they are sitting on a branch and cutting off the branch that they're sitting on. So this doesn't make much sense. So critical theory, the main, the main argument against it is that it's incoherent. Everything it complains about, it also does. Let's do another one. You got to stop texting me less, by the way. There's too many, too many of these. It's wrong to impose your views of right and wrong on other people. What are you doing if you say something like that? You're imposing your views on them. So it's like, hey, you're I'm, I'm, I'm tired of having, uh, uh, oh, sorry, I went the wrong way there. Uh, oh, hold on. Where do we go here? 
I think I messed it up. So it's wrong to impose your ethical views on others. Yeah, so if you do this, you're imposing your ethical views on others. I think our slides got messed up. That's okay. So you see that it's very hard for critical theory to make these kind of claims because they tell you something's wrong, they're imposing their ethical views on you. So let's go ahead and click forward here. Uh, there we go. Uh, it's hanging up. Sorry, guys. There we go. One more, please. Help me out there, buddy. There we go. Um, here, let's take that last part about the good group and the, good, the bad group, the in group and the out group. So the, what they would say is that claims to truth will create, always create a good group that oppresses the bad group. And that's bad. We don't want to have oppression. Oppression is wrong. We're for justice. Right? This is what critical theory is after. The problem is right after they say this, claims the truth just to create a self-proclaimed good group that oppresses the bad group, they always follow it up with the following sentence. They say, and if you don't agree with me about this, then you are a bad person and you should lose your job. You're like, wait a minute. So in advocating against oppression and for justice, all we did was created a new in-group that treats everybody else like they're a bad group. Right? Some of y'all have heard this. This floats around social media with terms like cancel culture, things like that. This is all over the place on college campuses. Um, I have tenure, so hopefully they can't fire me. Uh, but you can imagine like this sort of thing of like, agree with me. We have to dismantle oppressive systems. And if you don't agree with me, you should lose your job. It quickly turns this person who is seeking after justice and turns them into an oppressor. Happens real fast. So you see how incoherent this critical theory kind of concept is. So, uh, <clears throat> okay, that was easy. Done. I don't think we have to talk about this anymore, right? We're all done. There is a problem. So what I just told you is true. Critical theory and the way that it's set in postmodernism, the way it sets this stuff out, is incoherent. Everything it complains about, it also does. However, this statement, Christianity is oppressive, has that ever been true in history? It actually kind of is true. I mean, I can give you lots and lots of stories. Um, there's an 8th century king in what is now France, but um, he's called Charles the Great, or if you say it in French, Charlemagne. You may have heard of this guy. And he killed thousands of Saxons, and he told all the remaining Saxons, uh, you can be baptized or you can have your throat cut. Right? So that's an example of Christianity being used to oppress people. So this complaint that people use Christianity as a means to have power over others, like it definitely has happened. So we have to take story number two very seriously. We can't just dismiss it as being incoherent, even though it is. I'll tell you a story, and this one's going to be a hard story to hear. I'll go ahead and tell you now. Okay, so this is the story of a man named Herschel Levi. He grew up in Prussia. Prussia is basically like East Germany. That's, like, that's where, where Berlin is. Um, he was Jewish. He's the son of a rabbi. And he became a lawyer, and he wanted to hold public office. Uh, but they had a rule that you could not hold public office unless you were a Christian. So Herschel was told, like, sorry, I know you're the most qualified person for the job, but you can't do it. Because we have a law. Only Christians can hold public office. And so, you know, some people tried to defend him and get an exception for him. And they said, and then finally he said, like, you know what? I don't care. I'll get baptized. I'll, I'll, I'll convert just so I can hold this position. And then a few years later, his wife and his young son um, were also baptized. I want you to think about this. I mean, it, I can go ahead and tell you that Herschel did not really believe. He said, I'll convert. I'll do whatever you want. I'll be baptized so that I can have this business position, but I don't really believe it. So that doesn't seem like a real win for Christians. It doesn't seem very good. I told this story to uh, some folks in my church, and there was one woman who thought like, well, this isn't great, but at least the child, at least the child would grow up as a Christian. 
Sadly, that is not what happened. That son knew that his dad converted for business reasons. And so the son actually grew up and said, like, people don't even really believe this. This is just a way that, that we exercise power over each other. Religion is just a way that people control each other. I want nothing to do with it. That's what the son grew up saying. Um, I haven't told you the whole story yet. The whole story is this. When he converted, Herschel changed his name to Heinrich Marx, and that son's name was Karl. Have you heard of him? In some way, he is the, the grandfather of critical theory. You can see now why he thought some of the things he thought. If his experience with Christianity was, this is this thing my dad pretends to believe in for business reasons. It's pretty sad. So we as Christians have to own that. We have to treat this seriously. We have to respond seriously. So what I'd like to do with our remaining time, <clears throat> help me out here, bud. Help me out. This worked earlier, I promise. There we go. So I want to give you two different ways to respond to this story. Um, the first one is going to be like, okay, uh, story number two is really interested in stopping oppression and promoting justice and promoting human rights. So we have to think like, where do human rights come from? So that's response number one. And response number two is to try to communicate how can Christians make a truth claim without being arrogant or exclusive and oppressive? Because that's what we're trying to do, right? We want to make a truth claim, but we don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be oppressive and exclude other people in a cruel way. So we got to figure out how we can do that. So I want you to keep these two in mind. Here we go. So this first point, where did we get the concept of human rights? I'll go ahead and we talked about this a little bit in the, in the earlier session. Um, so the idea of uh, we, you know, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, right, with inalienable rights. That's in the Declaration of Independence, or it was, but till Nicholas Cage stole it. So um, <clears throat> one of the things you can know about that statement, the idea that people have rights, our beliefs and values like justice and equality, we, we believe these, we're Americans, right? Um, we have to ask, where did those come from? Why do we believe in those things? Why do we believe oppression is wrong? Can you get that from science? Can science tell you that something is right or wrong? It actually can't. When you go in the lab and you do a scientific experiment, you describe what does happen. Science says, here's what does happen. But science cannot tell you what should happen. It cannot tell you what should happen. So that means that as soon as you make a statement, you should live in a certain way. You should treat people with respect and dignity. You should make sure that this person's rights are not violated. You are not making scientific statements. You're effectively making statements about something more than science, more than nature. You're making arguments about the supernatural. So the reality is, as soon as someone says, I believe in justice, I believe in human rights, I believe in equality, they are already committing themselves to something higher than just the natural. They're saying there's something supernatural, right? <clears throat> just to give you a sense, here, let me go back. So C.S. Lewis wrote this famous book, Mere Christianity, and this is the heart of the book, is that we all, in our hearts, we know that there is such a thing as right and wrong. We know there's such a thing as fairness. We know that there's some kind of a moral law. And even in the Declaration of Independence, it says, endowed by their creator. So if you say, where does that right and wrong come from? If there is a moral law, it has to come from a moral lawgiver. Right? We can't just assert that there is a moral law and not know where it comes from. For Christians, we say that moral law comes from God. I want to show you what a big difference this makes. 
It's easy to take that for granted in 21st century America. <clears throat> I'm going to read you a quote. Here we go. Let's see if we can do this. Nature herself intimates that it is, it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. So this sounds like something a villain from a Marvel movie would say, right? In fact, in the first Avengers movie, I think Loki says almost exactly this. But this quote is not actually from Loki. This is from Plato, one of the greatest philosophers who's ever lived, right? So it turned out if you go to ancient Greece or ancient Rome and you say, all people are equal, they would be like, in what, height? No, clearly all people are not equal. Some people are better than others and some people have more rights than others and some people have no rights at all. That's what the ancient world thought. Here's another quote. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of our birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. Doesn't your inner American say like, no, absolutely not. This is what Aristotle taught. This is what people believed in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. They say, yeah, some people are higher on the totem pole and some people are lower. Some people have no rights at all. So the reality is back in the ancient world, these concepts that we have of rights and justice and oppression, like nobody believed in it. Nobody would take that seriously. And it gets even worse than that. In the ancient, oh, so so in, in the ancient world, you'd have to say like, well, where do our rights come from? The Christians had an answer. The Christians actually had an answer. They said, human rights are grounded in the image of God. The reason it is wrong, the reason you're wrong, Plato, the reason you're wrong, Aristotle, to treat someone else like they're low on the totem pole and have no rights, is because each human is made in the image of God. I thought this proverb was really good. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. The reason it's wrong to mistreat someone, even if they're less powerful than you, the reason to treat them like they have no dignity is because that person is made in the image of God. And to mistreat that person is an insult to God. God created us in his own image, and that's where our rights come from. By the way, the fact that the Christians believed this made them revolutionaries in the ancient world. So I'll, I'm, this is kind of extreme, but I'm going to go ahead and read this. Um, Aristotle also taught, he says, As to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. So some of you may be like, what is he talking about? So to rear a child means to bring the child up. What would it mean to expose a child? It literally, I can't, I, can't, I can't believe they did this. It was common in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, especially if that child was a girl. They would say, like, leave it in the dump. They would just take that baby and leave it in the dump and leave it to die. That was common. That was normal in the ancient world. So you can see the ancient world was a place where oppression is all over the place and concepts of justice don't hold any sway. So something's changed. Something changed. We don't do this madness anymore. So what changed? The thing that changed is that the early church, armed with the teachings of Jesus, to show the ancient world that there is a different way. I want to tell you about a sister in Christ of yours, this lady named Macrina. Macrina lived in the fourth century, and she would go around the dump and find those babies that had been left and adopt them and care for them. And so the early, and you, if you ask Macrina, why, do you, why, why? Why are you doing this? And she would say, well, I think of children the way Jesus thinks of children. How's, how, what does Jesus think about little children? He doesn't think what Aristotle thinks. He says, let the little children come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So the early church revolutionized all of the way our civilization thinks about justice and rights and equality. So if someone comes to you and says Christianity is oppressive, you should say, like, you need to learn your history. 
These things that we value, justice, human rights, compassion, consent, they did not exist 2,000 years ago. And it was the early church that they were revolutionaries who changed completely the way we think about these things to where now we just take these things for granted. It's really remarkable. Okay? Let's keep going. Here we go. Um, Here's another interesting thing. Uh, What if you got sick in the ancient world? Most of the time, it's like, well, you're going to stay at home. I hope you get better. Good luck. Um, they did create sick bays. Like if you're on the battlefield, they say like, oh, we need a sick bay for the, for the soldiers who have been wounded. Hopefully they can get better so they can go back out and be a good soldier again. Same thing for slaves. Like, oh, this slave is sick. They're, they're hurt. We got to put them in the sick bay. Hopefully they get better. Go back and be a good slave again. On the early Christians, uh, they said like, I don't, I don't think this is really quite good enough. Um, I have compassion on my neighbor who is sick. I have compassion on the people who are ailing. And so they invented this new concept that had never existed before called hospitals. Did you know that? 2,000 years ago, there were zero hospitals in the world. Zero. And every, if you go around, you'll notice that lots of hospitals around the United States, they have names like St. Joseph's on them. And that's because Christians actually invented the idea of hospitals. They invented the idea of orphanages because the ancient world would be like, why should we care? It's your problem. Why should we care about a child with no parents? Who cares about that? The Christian said, I care. Jesus cares. So this idea that Christianity is oppressive flies in the face of history. The reality is the ancient world was very oppressive and Christianity changed everything. So I think that's one of the responses that we can give. The reason that justice is important, the reason oppression is wrong is because people are made in the image of God. That's what gives us rights. That's why, because God cares about us, everyone else should care too. Because God gives us dignity. That's why we treat others with dignity. And the more you learn about the early church, about our brothers and sisters in Christ who had no power, they had no political power, they had no ability to do anything except go around and show kindness to those that were mistreated by society, that is why the early church revolutionized the ancient world. Women in the ancient world were treated like dirt. And then the early Christians said, I don't think so. Christ, love your wives as Christ, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a revolution. So that's one answer you can give. Here's the other answer I think you can give when people say that Christianity is oppressive. Um, Effectively, the the postmodern critique of Christianity is if you say that your faith is true, they would say like, you're just a human. You have the same limited perspective that I do. So how can you possibly know that? That's arrogant for you to say that you know. You can believe your Christianity, keep it to yourself, but you can't possibly know. That's what they would say. And they would say, if you do say that you know, then you are necessarily going to exclude some people and set yourself up as superior and other people as inferior. You are in the in-group and other people are in the out-group. This is is the critique. So I think we can answer this one as well. Some of y'all may have heard this story before. How many of y'all have ever heard the story of the blind man and the elephant? Yeah? Okay. So usually people... So I'll go ahead and tell you the story and we'll try to think about it. Uh, The story is that a king... Uh, tried this little experiment where he has this big room and he puts an elephant in the room and he brings in a bunch of people who are, uh, depending on the version of the story, they're either blind or they're blindfolded. And he tells these blind people like, go figure out what's in the room. And so they go and then one blind person gets a hold of the elephant's tail and they're like, well, maybe this is like a rope or something. And some other person gets a hold of the, uh, the elephant's uh, ear and says, oh, it's like kind of a giant leaf or something or a fan. Somebody gets a hold of the elephant's trunk and says it's more like a spear. Someone else feels the side of the elephant and says it's kind of like a brick wall. And they all disagree with each other. And they actually start arguing. These blind people start saying like, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And the point of the illustration is supposed to be that all these different religions that argue with each other are all just getting different little pieces of God. That's supposed to be the point of the illustration. 
Um, but what I want to show you is this illustration doesn't actually work and doesn't actually communicate what people say it do. Say, say it does. So people are usually saying, see, all, all religions are, are equally true. All the blind men have it wrong. All of them are wrong. So effectively, it's saying all religions are equally false. But in reality, what it's actually saying, and this is what the person really means, when someone uses this illustration, what they mean is that all religions are man-made. Christianity is man-made. Islam is man-made. They're all man-made. So if they're all man-made, how can you say that one is better than the others? Now, I hope you see the irony in this illustration. If someone says, this is the way it is, then the person telling the story, are they blind? They're the king. So ironically, this illustration, which is supposed to tell people don't be arrogant, if you use the illustration, you are being arrogant. You are making a truth claim. So it doesn't really work very well that way. But what I want to also show you, you may think like, oh, I still kind of feel the difficulty. It feels weird to say like, I've got the truth and you don't. That feels weird. It feels arrogant. How do I know what they don't know? And what I want to show you is it is possible for one of these blind people to get the right answer. The way they can do it is if the elephant speaks to them. The elephant could say like, hey, I'm an elephant. And the blind person says, I know what it is. It's an elephant. And everyone else says, shut up. You're, you're just as blind as the rest of us. Why should we listen to you? Are you better than us? And he's like, no, no, no. I'm not better than you at all. But this elephant spoke. That's how I know what it is. And so that is the, what gets you out of this, this problem. The reason we can say that we know that this is true is because the elephant, in this case, so to speak, has spoken. We are not better than anyone else for knowing this. It's not because we're so smart or so clever. It's because God has revealed himself. That's where the knowledge comes from. And it gives no room for arrogance or superiority. So the knowledge problem comes from the fact that God reveals himself. He shows himself to us. He's revealed himself to us through scripture and ultimately through the person of Christ. How about this second problem of arrogance? This is the last passage we're going to go through. Um, I'm going to read a Bible passage in a second, but I want to take just a moment. Um, sometimes someone write, draws a picture, and the picture really gets the idea of the passage across. So I want you to take a good look at this picture. You've got two people. They have different postures. I want you to think about which one you are. This picture is illustrating a story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I really love this passage, and I think this is what the unbelieving world needs to hear. Because the world out there, when they think of Christians, which person up here do they, do, do they think of? They think of the Pharisee. They think all of us are like this. We're like this guy. And so we have to tell them the truth. Like, we may have given that impression, and we're very sorry about that. That is our fault. But the truth is, Christianity is not this guy. This is what Christians are like. Downcast. Not putting any hope in their own self-righteousness. And so the answer of like, why does Christianity not lead to superiority? Is because we know which one of these two people we are. 
You know that you're not the superior self-righteous Pharisee. We know that we're the tax collector who's completely 100% counting on the mercy of God. So this will be my last slide. If I can get it there. Help me out, buddy. Give me one more, buddy. There we go. This is, so this is the solution. And if someone tells you Christianity is oppressive, how can you possibly know? And if you think you've got the solution, aren't you treating other people like they're inferior? You say, like, we only know because God graciously revealed himself. And Jesus gives us meaning, purpose, forgiveness, and salvation, not based on what we do. We have no basis for superiority. Zero. So I know that the outside world thinks of us like these Pharisees, but we have to communicate like, no, we are this downcast tax collector. We're just another blind person, but God's revealed himself to us very graciously. We don't have any room to demean others or treat them like the inferior. This is how the Christian can say, I really do think this is the truth. And it doesn't make me better than you. It doesn't give me license to oppress you. It's because we believe in a non-oppressive absolute. Because we know the only way that we know about Jesus is through God's grace. And that's the message that the outside world needs to hear. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I lift up the students in this room. I pray that um, in these years to come, as they experience challenges to their faith, that uh, through your Holy Spirit, that, that um, you'll help them to see the beauty of the faith. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who came before us the ones who were so revolutionary in showing kindness to slaves, kindness to little abandoned babies. I pray that we can be revolutionary and countercultural just like them. I pray that when the outside world starts to doubt our faith, or when we ourselves start to, start to doubt our faith, that uh, through your Holy Spirit, you will show us both the truth and the beauty of your gospel. We thank you for this passage. I pray that you remove from us any spirit of self-righteousness and make us more like this tax collector who completely counts on you uh, for their forgiveness. In your name I pray. Amen.